Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day here in the capital and a week where we're not quite sure whether a global pandemic or Russian interference constitutes a greater threat to the country. I'm sure only time will tell on that one. I am your host, Scott Challoner, and in each episode, I look to bring together new perspectives on leadership. Um, I'm delighted first and foremost to be joined on the programme today by Peter Clare. Um, Peter is the Managing Director of Environmental Crop Management, a company which provides agronomy services to farmers, helping them manage crop health with minimal environmental disturbance, while also delivering high yields. Later on in the programme, we'll also be hearing from former Education Secretary and Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord David Blunkett. But for now, Peter, very warm welcome to you, and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. My pleasure. It's a real pleasure for you for us having you um, with us as well, Peter. Um, reason we're here is to, of course, uh, discuss your take on leadership first and foremost. So if we begin by taking that word leader aside and considering it in a bit more detail, I'm interested to understand what that word means to you and what you feel the role of a leader is. Well, uh, leadership for me w- w- would be in two parts, really. Leadership of we have a business as environmental crop management as the best crop section company in the world to provide the very, very best agronomy to farmers without damaging the environment. So leadership in terms of we set the business up to help farmers to lead them into better practices of integrated crop management and how to look after the environment whilst getting good crops. Within our business and the people that work for me, I would see myself as a leader as directing things, but really I would say that the people that work I don't. I don't like the fact that I, I would never say people work for me. I would say they work with me. Um, I see my position as a leader as sort of one of service to them to get the best out of them, um, whilst maintaining the sort of practices that I believe in that are the right things to do for the environment and also for farmers to provide good and safe food for the country. At the end of the day, as a company like us, one of our slogans is profitable crop safely, and the other one is we feed people. Uh, and I think it's been very easy for people to become very, very um, disconnected from where the food comes from. They're also very disconnected from how it's grown. And I don't realise the care that farmers take in terms of looking after the environment in providing good, good priced food, which is very, very safe, which is there available all the time. Um, and it just becomes, people just assume the food will always be there. Well, if our our industry is a crop protection industry. We see there are weeds, pests, and diseases that put our food at threat every day of the year, um, and our industry caters for that and prevents the losses that would occur if we didn't if we didn't do what we did and looked after the crops. And when we speak of the um, environment as well, that is an issue that's really been brought to the fore by, interestingly enough, the COVID-19 situation that everybody's talking about at the moment, isn't it? Because the reviews of our working practices, the fact that people are no longer commuting into cities to work in their customary workplaces, it's brought a whole new sort of light on the whole issue of sustainability, um, environmental friendliness. Um, So that's one important thing. Um, But also, um, it's important in the sense that environmental challenges are one of the greatest issues that the agricultural industry faces at the moment, isn't it? It definitely is. Climate change has, has created a, a situation in the last few years where we get periods of, of sort of extremely extended 
series of weather that are not conducive to crop growth. We have the wettest autumn, which prevented the planting of winter wheat, which is the main arable crop in the UK. So this was the lowest planting on record this last autumn because it physically could not be planted into the ground because it was too wet. We then went into a very wet spring, and then we went into a very dry period, um, which was exceptionally dry, which damaged some of the spring-sown crops. Um, so climate change is something as a business. We, we um, won a Green Apple Award, which was presented at the House of Commons, on mitigating uh, climate change in terms of how you actually grow crops. So you actually grow crops, um, you grow bigger crops using the environmental change, but without, and then reducing the actual, um, you can reduce carbon, the, the, the carbon dioxide footprint of crops with new techniques that we've developed. So, yeah, the environmental thing and the climate are all sort of one and the same. We see, we're seeing pests and diseases, which 15 years ago would not have been in the northwest of England, but have moved further north as the climate's warmed up. So, um, farmers face severe challenges with the, the climate changes that we're seeing at the moment. Exactly right. And um, as well as that, um, I suppose juggling this issue with the disruption caused by COVID has been a real challenge as well. Um, of course, given the nature of the work that you do, I can imagine that working practices have sort of been to a degree normal service, but have you had to COVID, sort of adapt co- yeah, anyway? Co- yeah. yeah, the COVID situation, we, we've... Um, there are the agronomists, of which I am an agronomist, which is basically a crop doctor or an agricultural scientist. Uh, we've not been in direct contact with the farmers where we would have been. So we, we've walked the fields, which is what we do every day. We examine the crops to see what treatments that they do need. So we've been doing that, um, but not seeing the farmers directly. Or, or, or obviously, uh, it'd be more than two metres usually. We're just shouting across the yard to each other. Um, and then the goods have been delivered, the logistics of getting the materials that we sell, the crop protection materials. Um, it's been an unbelievable achievement that we've continued to, from our suppliers, the big multinational companies such as BNSF, Bayer, Corteva, they have managed to keep the stocks of materials coming. We've got them onto farm. Um, we've we've run our business so that the drivers that when they're acting, filling the vans and things up in the morning, they don't see each other, they stagger things like that. But we operate in what is already a socially distanced industry. Um, people are quite isolated. Farmers are quite isolated. Um, so in many respects, um, the impact has not been all that great on our business. But the, the logistics of getting the materials that we need from our suppliers and then onto the farm, that's been a challenge, but it's one that we've, we've risen to. And um, and obviously with farming, it's an essential industry. Um, crops keep growing. Cows need milking, um, cattle grow and meat and made into meat. So all these things just occur that, that you can't stop. There's no turning off agriculture. It continues anyway. It, there's no way it could be turned off because we all need to eat. I mean, if you look at food security, uh, we're talking at any one time, there's only seven days of food um, in, the, in the supply chain to actually go to people. Um, people are amazed that it's such a short time. And if you if you think what happened with the toilet roll situation, as soon as people thought for some reason they looked down toilet rolls were going short, there were no toilet rolls. If people panicked into the food situation like that, there's only seven days of food in the supply chain. So food security also is, is absolutely an enormous issue that needs to be addressed. And this idea that we can just import materials, 
from it for the rest of Europe and food there and we don't need to do it twice else with the nonsense. We saw people closing borders in Europe. That could have affected our food supply. As it happened, it didn't. But um, we need to be as self-sufficient as we can in the, in the, in the coming decades. We must do that. We must do that. Yes, exactly. Uh, exactly right. And um, I think when it comes to sort of the agricultural side of things as well, there's another looming challenge on the uh, horizon because we don't quite know at this point in time what the situation is going to be with um, a trade deal with the European Union as well. Um, so what are your sort of views on what's going to come sort of at the uh, the end of the year? Because as well as dealing with sort of COVID, the climate emergency, there's also that to come on the horizon as well. So there's a lot to contend with at this point in time. There is in particular because none of our suppliers actually come up the materials we use are actually made in Europe. So it's absolutely vital that post the Brexit situation when it's sorted out that this frictionless trade with Europe because um, we need to be able to get hold of the materials that we need. And also the frictionless trade works the other way in terms of if we're exporting fresh food out of this country or wanting fresh food brought into this country. There can't be delays because you've got a very, very perishable product. It's not something that you can just sit there and think, well, if it's there in a week, it doesn't matter. It matters things that deliver just in time fresh. It's what everyone's used to, it's what we've been able to do so far. So it's absolutely essential that that continues. Um, food supply, like I said, tends to be very, very much taken for granted and people just think the tools at the supermarket that's where the food comes from, where it doesn't, the food comes from. A man in a field planting seeds or a man in, in a, in, on a farm growing cows, milking cows. It's a long-term process um, with traceable products. So we've become far, far too um, complacent about where our food comes from and um, food security and food security in the context of Brexit is absolutely vital. Um, you've said, of course, um, on a couple of occasions already that agriculture can't just be turned off. It's a key, key industry because people do need to be fed, of course. But when you have to contend with so many different challenges of such magnitude, especially all at one time, how easy is it just to sort of take stock and process things and then get ready to tackle these um, issues? Because I can imagine just taking a moment to pause in itself can sort of feel quite a challenge in itself. Well, I think. The one thing that you've got with agriculture and with farmers and farmers and the people involved in the agricultural industry, basically because we're so used to the unpredictability of the weather, forget climate change, it, 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 we live in it, an unpredictable. We are very, very sort of flexible and resilient people. So um, in general, we deal with these things, but the frictionless trade, which is going to be set by politicians, and this idea that... Um, you know, this, 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 these are not cars that can be, we don't produce cars that can be put in a, in a, in a parking lot and left for a week. Um, and like you said, the, 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 the other issue, of course, is we're involved with a living process. The crops grow, have to be put in at a certain time and are harvested at a certain time. So if you're a dairy farmer, in terms of producing the milk, you're getting the cows pregnant at a certain stage to produce milk a year later or two years in, in a cycle. So all these things will have to be taken into consideration to do with any trade deals or the rules and regulations of how farming is to continue. Um, if you look back in history, shortage of food has caused some of the most calamitous political problems um, the world has ever seen. If you look at um, 
potato blight in Ireland, which so basically a potato blight, a fungus in Ireland, some hundreds of years ago, causes devastation um, to a population, followed by all the political ramifications of that. So the idea that food production and politics are separate is a nonsense. Um, three or four years ago, there were shortages of food in parts of um, the Middle East. Uh, and shortages of maize in Mexico, which led to food riots. The whole stability of society depends on there being an adequate food supply. Um, and this idea that it can either be turned off and on and it could there is, is just a nonsense. And politicians need to be made aware of that and realise how precarious really our, our food supply is. I think you raise an extremely important point there and it's one that people tuning in should really, really take into consideration, I think, because I think um, you're completely right. We are very detached from where our food comes from and a little bit of awareness does go a long way. And thinking about sort of what might come over the course of the year, the next 12 months, of course, we can only really speculate at this point. But considering the scale of challenges on the horizon, what do you think is next for you, Peter, and for environmental crop management? And what do you ultimately hope to achieve over the next year? Well, I think hopefully this autumn it won't rain all autumn, so we'll get the crops ready when normally. In terms of how the farming year will go, the farming year will go as it always has been because it, it, it is a natural process. After the uh, we'll put the crops in when we should in the autumn. Uh, people will be milking cows and doing whatever. The one thing that we are looking towards now, which is we, we have a, a research team at Manchester Metropolitan University and one at Lancaster University, is that we're actually looking at treatments for on crops in the UK, treatments that would have, due to the climate and it being very, very dry in particular, we're, we're looking at treatments that are used in um, the Middle East on treating crops here to get them to, to cope with, it, with the heat. Um, and we've also been looking at treatments on crops where the water logs, we've done a lot of research on waterlogging of crops. If, if the autumns are going to be very wet, the crops are going to be waterlogged. Then we've, we've come up with a whole system to deal with waterlogged crops. In actual fact, unbelievably, when we started this research, um, there's hardly any research on waterlogged crops in the UK. So basically, we're, we're looking to deal with the climate, um, how to get crops to grow under adverse conditions, because that's what that's what my business is all about. Again, very often it's done with sort of nutritional materials, so they're, they're, they're not pesticides as such. They are, we do those as well, but they are ways of helping the crop be managed so that it can survive more adverse conditions. Hopefully the Brexit thing will be sorted out by politicians, and, I mean, that's obviously hugely out of someone like mine's hands, but if people don't realise about food security, if they get this wrong, they will understand about food security because... One thing's for sure, any political party that cannot feed people is going to get kicked out. Um, and like I said, with seven days food in the supply chain at any one time, and that's at the moment the friction with trade with Europe, any disruption to that is going to be absolutely disastrous for the country. Um, so, yeah, we'll continue farming, and we need politicians to allow us to continue farming in the way we have and provide good food for the the, the um the public of Great Britain. I think there are some very, very important points to take away from that. You are completely right. I think if there are any slip-ups on this side of things, the consequences will become very, very clear before too long. And Peter, considering that 
it is only a case of speculation at this point in time as to what may happen, particularly with issues such as Brexit. I think it would actually be brilliant to catch up and have you back on the show in future just to see where we are at in a few months' time and just reassess the situation from there, particularly given how informative and insightful it's been having you join us today. Well, that would be great. And also, in terms of leadership, I, I sort of see a responsibility to... I don't come from a family background originally. I don't. I've done this job for 40 years um, and understand how um, the sort of non-farming community see the world and some of the misconceptions that they have need to be put... They, they need to be educated. Um, it's not a matter of uh, us and them. It's a matter of, in terms of leadership, it's a matter of someone like me getting across to people and going, you've only got seven days' food, it occurs like this, we have to look after the crops in such a way to provide food. If you didn't do this, you'd have no crops because they'd be destroyed by weeds, pests or diseases, which in other parts of the world that aren't fortunate enough to have the technology that we can use happens. Um, it, it always annoys me because we've been talking for about 15, 20 minutes and during that time worldwide, Something like 100 people have died of starvation. Now, we don't get hit with starvation in this country, but somewhere in the last 15 minutes that you and I have been talking, 100 sons, daughters, children have died, and for their families, that is catastrophic and really matters. We are so fortunate that that's not something that ever really besits us, and it's not a problem we have, but um, we need to make sure that food security is maintained with all the political shenanigans that will go on with Brexit because um, if you've not got food, you've not got society. Exactly right. And it's an incredibly thought-provoking message for anybody tuning into this and one that I hope those in power will certainly heed, Peter, for sure. It's been a real pleasure and a very, very insightful experience having you join us today, I must say, Peter. And most importantly, until we do speak again in future, hopefully, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on in the world as well. Thanks for the opportunity to, to put across what we do in farming. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Peter. Thank you for joining us. Um, I was speaking today to Peter Clare, Managing Director of Environmental Crop Management. And coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett, who is today an active member of the House of Lords, Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. And all of that is of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the 
the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain 
historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country 
that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, 
experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about 
is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer 
where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, 
and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, 
uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.